Good morning. I hope you're all having a wonderful Advent season. Well, it's a Sunday before Christmas, so I know what you're all thinking. Yes, we are going to dive deep into the Old Testament, into Exodus and Leviticus. Today we're going to be talking about my best friend, but at times, arch-nemesis, Moses. Exodus and Leviticus were both written by Moses and are fairly intimidating books. Exodus is this book with huge stories that are beyond theatrical, and some of it is hard to stomach. You see, I personally haven't always had a good relationship with Moses or with Exodus, but I'll get into that a little bit later. Let's talk about Leviticus for a moment. I have a theory on Leviticus. I haven't researched it, nor do I have statistical data to prove it, but I believe that Leviticus is the most randomly quoted book in the Bible. I think people often just make stuff up and tether it to Leviticus. Why does this happen? I don't think it's read very much. It's called Leviticus, number one, and it doesn't exactly roll out the tongue. And number two, I don't often hear people say, yes, this morning while I was doing my morning devotions, I was really reflecting on Leviticus. I don't hear that very often. See, I just don't think it's read very much, and that's why people get away with saying things like, cut it out, kids. You know what the good book says? Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's drone. It says so in Leviticus 4.12. You and I both know that there is no way that that could be in there. Now, Exodus, it's a big book filled with so much stuff. And as I said before, I haven't always had a great relationship with it. You see, when I was in elementary school, I was the only little Egyptian kid in my Sunday school class in Colorado. And it's hard to sit in class when you're getting death stares from all the other kids because your people are the bad ones in the story. The bad people in a lot of the Old Testament. <laughs> and no matter how many times I cried out, it wasn't me, it was my ancestors, it didn't work. We used to earn badges in, in church at Bible quizzing for each book of the Bible. And I went home and I told my parents, guys, I'm good. I don't really need the Exodus badge. But beyond that, though, as an adult, I, didn't, I still didn't really understand the importance of Exodus. I didn't even understand what it meant. Do you know what Exodus means? Does it mean a mass leaving of people with snakes and robes and chariots and manna and more drama? No. It wasn't until I was in an Arabic-speaking Bible study in Egypt that it finally clicked for me. The leader of the Bible study told us to turn to Khurug. And I was like, Khurug? I know that word. What, what's Khurug in the Bible? So I opened up my Arabic-English Bible, and I saw that Khurug is Exodus, and it finally clicked for me. You see, Khurug means exit, or let's go, or get out. But it's a much deeper, heavier, more important word than what we have in English. Khurug is written all over exit signs in Egypt, and when you want to leave, you say, let's go, Nukhrug. It's bigger. But since we don't use the word exodus in our daily life here, I never really got it. In Hebrew, exodus is shema, which means, and there were the names, because so much of it is about lineage. And in Greek, it's exodos, which means going out. So if it helps us to understand, I thought of ways that exodus can be used in our 2015 English-speaking context for us to understand the gravity of it, what it really meant for them to get out how about, guys, things are getting really bad. Hurry, exodus the situation. Or, it's so intense that they all exodus out of the fire exodus. 
And if you're so inclined, guys, things are getting really gnarly. We're going to have to exit us the heck out of here, like right now. It doesn't just mean to go, it means to go. So this morning, let's dive into, dude, let's exodus out of here, also known as exodus in some of your Bibles, to see what happened in the desert thousands of years ago and why it matters to us now. If Moses is new to you, I'll let me catch you up on his epic life and the books that chronicled him. Moses was born to Israelite parents who were slaves in Egypt. And he was born during a time that they were required to drown every male child in the Nile River. His parents were of the tribe of Levi, and they wisely put him in a waterproof basket and hid him among tall grass in that very river. The Pharaoh's daughter, who was the king at the time, the Pharaoh's daughter heard him crying and found and rescued him. She named him Moses, which means drawn from water, and her desire for a son was fulfilled through him. She made certain that he had the best of everything, including an education. Moses was raised in the splendor of the Egyptian monarchy as the Pharaoh's grandson. He was raised to adulthood in Egypt, but knew of his Israelite roots. He shared a deep compassion for his enslaved people. He became furious one day while witnessing an Egyptian brutally beating an Israelite slave. So then he killed him. Fearing what the Pharaoh would do, he fled to the desert. He then became a shepherd in that desert, and while tending flocks on a mountain, he saw a burning bush and heard the angel of the Lord from within it say to him that he would go back to Egypt and lead the Israelites out. He was also told to declare that there was only one God for his people, And at that time, the Israelites were worshiping many gods. Moses was to tell them that there was only one God. So he went back to Egypt to free the Israelite people from slavery. God used Moses to lead the refugees through the desert, where he kept order and brought them to the border of their future home in Canaan. Now, about that. It took them 40 years. Four, zero, 40 years. That's a long time. I've actually taken several trips from the Nile River Delta down to the Sinai Peninsula. Don't get me wrong, it wasn't um, a religious pilgrimage. That's just where my favorite resort is. But from the Nile River Delta to the, to the Sinai, it takes about five and a half hours on a slow bus. Five and a half hours to cross the Sinai or 40 years. You see, it took them the 40 years to get from Egypt to what is now modern-day Syria and Jordan. I was going to look up for an equation online to see how long it should have taken them to walk, but I was like, one, that's not the point, and two, that's adding insult to injury. Imagine the frustration, the politics that was going on among them. You know that there was one person that was like, are we there yet? Are we there? Or how about the person that's like, I just saw this clump of sand yesterday. You guys, we are going in circles. I bet that there was a lot of sin and stealing, and people were like, where is my golden calf? Somebody stole my golden calf. There was a lot going on with that many people over 40 years. But God used Moses, and he used what they went through in our lives. While on their journey, God used Moses to receive the Ten Commandments, and and he delivered them to the people. The people he delivered the Ten Commandments to 
we're blatantly doing the opposite of each of those commandments. That's a little bit about Moses. The Israelites needed to escape from Egypt because they were so heavily persecuted. They were mistreated beyond measure and used to do whatever the Egyptians wanted. They were living lives that were not pleasing to God themselves, and he needed to get them out of there to fulfill his plan for them and for all of us. And so they escaped. Even in the stress of escaping, the, of exodusing, of chruging, if you will, from slavery and attempting to right the wrong, God revealed a huge truth to Moses. Because after Moses was given the Ten Commandments and after the laws of justice and mercy were laid out to the Israelites through him, something very important happened. And for that, will you please turn to Exodus 24, 3 through 8 with me. In verse 3 of chapter 24 in Exodus, we're told, When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord had said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of that blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. This is the important part. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in according with all those words. I'm going to repeat verse 8 one more time. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with, all, with you in accordance with all these words. These are the very people that were doing everything they wanted before. Yet God gave them, through Moses, these words. And he sprinkled the blood and said to them that this is the covenant made with accordance of these words. What verse 8 meant to them and what it still means to us today is that God has made a covenant, a law, a promise to his people. And right then and there, Moses was to do this because later, God would bring Christ to seal our salvation with blood. Later in Leviticus 17, 11, and I promise this is actually in Leviticus, so please turn with me to Leviticus 17, 11. There we are told, for the life of the creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourself on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourself on the altar. 
It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. What does that mean? It ex- it, it's explained to us in Matthew. You see, when God said that he would do something in the Old Testament, he did it, and then he showed it to us in the New Testament. The blood and the, the life of the flesh is explained to us in Matthew 26, 28, where Jesus says to us, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for so many for the re- forgiveness of sins. Later on in Mark, uh, Leviticus 17 is proven again by saying in Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Leviticus 17, 11, we're also, we also hear about the blood and the atonement. And that's proven again in Romans. Romans 3.23 says to us, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And verse 24 says to us, And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The blood that makes the atonement is also stated in verses um, 1 chapter 1 verse 7 of 1 John in the New Testament. Verse 7 tells us, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all our sin. You see, what was told in Leviticus was proven time and time again in the New Testament. So keeping in line with tough books of the Bible this morning, let's just dip a little bit into Isaiah quickly. Now God foretold of the need for Christ's blood for our salvation thousands of years ago. But it's important to note that he also gave us his detailed plan for Christ's birth a thousand years later. Isaiah 7, 14 tells us, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, the virgin. She will conceive and give birth to a son, and he will be called Emmanuel. That was in Isaiah 7.14. Isaiah was the prophet thousands of years before Christ was born. Then Matthew recounts this by saying in verse 1.18, how Joseph accepted Jesus as his son. This is how the... In uh, verse 18, it says, This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he did, he had considered this. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, which right there they're talking about Isaiah, that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. 
He didn't consummate their marriage until she gave birth to the son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So there you go. We hear that God told Moses what was going to happen. He used Moses to show the covenant. He told Isaiah the plan for Christ. And he also told us the birthplace of Christ long before. Before Christ was born, he told us of, his, of where he was going to be born in Micah 5.2, which is also in the Old Testament, before Christ. Micah 5.2 tells us, But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be the ruler over Israel, whose origins from old are of ancient times. Then we learn in Matthew that Christ came and that the Magi visited him, the Messiah. In Matthew 2, 1, we're, said the, we're told the Magi visited the Messiah. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, the Magi came from the east to Jerusalem. Why is it so important for us to talk about this history during Christmas of all times? Simply put, God had a strategic plan he planned out with wisdom what will happen through history. He planned when he created man, and he had a plan when Moses was in the desert. Going through all of this immense stress and that through all of the, these times and the trying times that Moses had, God's people would continue, and that they would worship one God, and that Christ would later come through all of this, and his grace were, was to save all people. And it happened. Throughout history, through the Old Testament, we see God's divine, perfect plan for Christ. At times, he used fallen people. At times, he used a murderer like Moses. Last week, we heard Colleen talk about the time he used a prostitute for all of this to be done. So all of us, every single one of us, could know Christ personally. The story of the Son of God born of a virgin, in a manger, having life here on earth, then crucified for our salvation and risen, is not merely an amazing story, but it's thousands of years of planning and acting. So in those times of despair that we all have, times that we don't, don't know where to fit in to God's plan and if we fit into God's plan, know that you, your salvation, was strategically planned by our loving God, our loving, grace-filled God thousands of years ago. If this is new to you and you're wanting to explore a deeper relationship with God, please feel free to see one of the staff members after the service. God had a plan for Moses and his crew. He told Isaiah exactly how Christ was going to come thousands of years before, and most importantly, he did it. God gifted all of us with his only son, born of a virgin. Celebrating Christmas this week is about celebrating Christ's birth, but it's also about celebrating God's divine plan for all of us. So to you this morning, I say Merry Christmas. You are part of God's divine, divine strategic plan. God loves you enough to have planned out your salvation through his son thousands of years ago. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much 
for the love that you have for us. We thank you that thousands of years ago you loved us so much that you began to plan for us. You began to plan for each and every one of us in this room to have a personal relationship with you. Father, we thank you so much that through that plan, you gave us your son, Christ. I pray that you would be with each and every one of us as we continue to celebrate you this week, Father. That we may be focused on you and you alone. that the thousands of years of planning for us that you did would be honored. Father, we pray for our friends and family who may not know you. We pray that they too would learn of your divine strategic plan. We thank you that through a virgin you gave us your son. We thank you that we're able to celebrate that this week. And Father, we pray that you would continue to use each and every one of us to glorify your name. In your name we pray. Amen.